0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I've really got a great show for you today. Uh, many people will be aware that the Emerging Writers Festival starts today, and there's just an incredible lineup of events and guests. The festival has also collaborated with other groups, magazines, and organisations to pull together an incredible EWFX program. And one of the amazing events that caught my interest is one run by Liminal Magazine. The magazine uh, was founded. Back in 2016, uh, by Leah Jing McIntosh, uh, the magazine features interviews with Asian Australians and the work of artists, writers and poets. At an event titled, in, titled Interstitial, uh, Liminal Magazine," um, Lim- Liminal Magazine's Leah Jing introduces poets, writers and comics who consider what it's like to straddle cultures and to dwell on the hyphen between both. Two of those featured guests, poet, musician and writer Heather Joan Day and illustrator, comic artist and zine maker Pio Michi join me to talk about living in the spaces between cultures and how their work addresses that. But very, very soon, award-winning author of The Wimmerer, Mark Brandy will join me to talk about his latest book, The Rip, a gripping mystery of sorts, but seen through the eyes of a young woman living on the streets of Melbourne and finding sharp glimpses of warmth and humanity in the face of it all. You are listening to a podcast from Community
0: Radio 3RRR FM in
1: Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to 3RRR, the show is Backstory, and I'm Mel Cranenberg. Sleeping rough in Princess Park is tough, but life with a friend like Anton and an affectionate good boy, Sunny, make it home. Things aren't easy, sure, especially with a habit to feed, but when Anton's friend Steve turns up, things really start to go south. Now they have somewhere to live, but there's an odd smell in the house and a locked door, and Steve seems to be hiding something. This is the story of Mark Brandy's latest novel, The Rip. Mark, who won a swag of awards for his gripping small-town crime novel, Wimmera, has a knack for well-spun local characters and ratcheting tension. He joins me now to talk about his latest book. Mark Brandy, welcome to Backstory.
2: Thanks, Mel. Great to be here.
1: Now... This I was just saying to you off air, this book was actually quite affecting for me because I worked for close to a decade at The Big Issue and I'm very used to seeing characters like this kind of treated as, I guess, sort of sideshows to the main story or as incidental victims. Very rarely do they get to be centred in this way or if they do, you know, it tends to be in the context of their interaction with another character that's more maybe like the readers, um, you know, that would pick the book up. This book very much dwells in that space of people who have fallen through the cracks of society, people who are sleeping rough or living in really insecure circumstances but they're deeply humanised in this book. Um, they're given these wonderful moments of grace and, um, But but it is quite a dark story and I think it's right to call it a crime. I mean there is a lot of incidental crime that happens here which is just part of the nature of I guess being poor Mm. but there is a deep darkness um, in at least some of the characters lives here. But I really do want to set off with how did you start writing The Rip?
2: Yeah look it was just after Wimra came out so 2017 it was probably about a month afterwards and I was doing all the publicity and all that kind of stuff out there, all that um, craziness and I basically to send to myself I, I love to write so I'd, I'd just go back to my room and work. And I think that voice, the voice of the main character in The Rip, it, it's interesting how it came to me because I, 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 start, I just started writing and I had this voice and the first scene really of the book of her waking up in the park with Anton and with her dog Sunny that's the very first thing I wrote and I, I didn't have a, a sense I suppose at that point of where the story was going to go or if it was going to be a crime story or even if it was going to be a novel at that stage I just thought I have to keep going with this voice and looking back on it I, I think I was absorbing a lot of what was going around me at, at the time which in Melbourne homelessness was becoming more and more Visible and, and it was interesting to see, I guess, the. The community reaction to that, and particularly in the CBD where we had, you know, traders who kind of wanted the problem gone, it then became a more of a media issue as well. And really, I, I suppose I, I noticed how the community, you know, you'd have some people who were, were, were sympathetic, let's say, or had a more humanitarian bent to how can we, we solve this, do we need more social housing, etc., and then I think that you have a section of the community too, are uh, uh, probably a little bit hard of heart, and and look look at people in that situation, and think, well, why are you there? Um, why can't you pick yourself up? And that kind of, um, I guess, uh, yeah, harder line on it. And I, and I suppose that you, you, the summary you gave at the start, which was excellent, I, I think that that really goes to that point about placing that character at the centre of the story instead of having, I guess, either a patronising point of view or a harsher point of view and I really wanted to give voice to that character.
1: It's it's got a horrible resonance, obviously, to a, to the recent death um, that occurred of a young woman who was in very similar circumstances to your central character. Um, I, it was absolutely incidental that that happened, but it really does highlight um, the the breadth of this issue and and the invisibility of it. Um, mm. I guess we are now starting to really see a lot of very visible homelessness uh, on the streets of Melbourne, largely you know obviously due to to rental crises mm. um, of a scale that we haven't experienced before. But there's always been a significant amount of homelessness. I think that there, there's an estimated uh, 110 or more, 116,000 people nationally who are considered to be uh, homeless, even if they're not necessarily sleeping rough. And that's a conservative estimate, um, considering that actually many people wouldn't be counted, um, Mm. especially those who are perhaps, you know, not of voting age. Mm. Uh, Mm. So, I mean, this is a really you know, a horribly timely story in a lot of ways. But there were a lot of things in here that I loved quite a lot and that felt very true to life to me. I remember uh, when the Black Saturday fires happened and I was working at the Big Issue then, and there were quite a few vendors who were actually trying to raise money uh, for those who'd lost their homes in the Black Saturday bushfires. And the absolute irony of that, that Mm. here were people, many of whom were still living in very insecure circumstances, if not sleeping rough, um, who were actually, trying to raise money for those who had lost homes who were actually vastly better off than them in many many ways uh it was just you know that kind of deep you know sense of empathy and humanity that those who have had to go through something often experience mm. and you very much give your central character a sense of this uh, on occasion she gives half of the her takings from from begging to uh, you know to someone else who she feels really needs it um, she has a real sense of you know how people will look after each other mm. when all of her stuff is left in the park she kind of she considers that it's not really likely to be stolen but people might just be consider that they've disappeared and then be worried about them. Why did you decide to wind in those moments in that way?
2: Mm. Well, I, I think she and, you know, we're, we're calling her the main character because she's not named mm, until quite late that's in right. the book.
1: I was going to address that.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and I think that, you know she she's a human being she's like a, a, any of us. She is in a precarious situation because of a whole host of circumstances that have led her to that point in, in, in ultimately um, uh, culminating in addiction as well and i and I guess you know i I look at people in that situation having spoken to people in that situation and been exposed to that in my life as well. And I know that it's circumstance often that leads you there. So the only reason kind of I'm in the situation I am largely is because the circumstances that I was born into and, you know, I I happen to have a supportive family around me. I've made a whole lot of, you know, bad decisions in my life as well and someone's there to kind of back you up and you've got, you know, you always know you've got a room to go to if things really go to crap. And for a lot of people that just isn't the case and i don't think that those circumstances make you less human or make you care about other people less that's just you know she's got her friend she's got anton she's got the exactly what you refer to the her um old friend who she runs into in the park and, and and gives some of her money to. and you know you mentioned before the the, the case of you know courtney heron which was, was really a- absolutely tragic and my blood ran cold you know when i was reading about it and it's just an all too common scenario that's the reality that um people find themselves in this situation because of a whole host of complex uh issues in in her case you know there's mental health problems um she became estranged from her family all those things can happen and she you know it was a very tragic end to to her story but i think we have to be mindful that that isn't rare there are people you know sleeping rough now very much like courtney very much like other people who've you know made made the headlines but they don't make the headlines that's that's just the reality so i i just i wanted to go deep into that story and tell that story well and and you know she was real to me she was absolutely real and through through telling the story I I kind of fell in love with her in a way you know by by the end of the story and I think it is a bit like that with your characters in in novels and, and particularly when you're in that first person perspective as well
1: if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author Mark Brandy about his latest book, The Rip, which is a kind of gripping tale set on the streets of Melbourne following a young woman uh, who. Is homeless uh, and at the same time has this very rich inner life, uh, but one that is starting to get increasingly dark. Uh, you do kind of address quite a few themes here. There's, you know, obviously addiction and domestic violence and um, you know abuse of all sorts, including sexual abuse, and that that is something that that uh, listeners should be aware of. Um, these are very present realities, though, for the central character and the other characters included in it and there is one you know element to Anton's story that just made me gasp (laughs) out Mm -hmm. loud of how he ended up in the circumstance he was in which again is an unfortunate um you know regular occurrence of you know uh I may not give that away necessarily because it is part of the plot but Mm. it is definitely something quite powerful um there is you know a villain in this piece though uh Steve and I do wonder at that because the other characters are really quite nuanced. they're all doing crimes and mm. um, that seems to be a, a pretty kind of like familiar part of daily life. Um, the central character be- is sort of quite friendly with a local cop who actually seems to have um, you know a sense of humanity about him and you know looks out for her a little bit mm. uh, and kind of overlooks some of the uh, victimless crimes that she perpet- that she's involved in yes. I guess. Uh, which are just her ma- ways of making a living. <clears throat> but there are, you know, Steve is the villain. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of interested in this. Do you feel like, I mean, because you, you do have a natural affinity for crime. Like you you write with a sense of underlying tension. You know, really not a huge amount happens in the book, but there is constantly that sense of, you know, the precariousness of the character's lives, of course, is always there. But there is that sense of a great darkness that you mm-hmm. really do Paint so well, so it's it's impossible not to think of this as a crime. <laughs> is, is it necessary to have a villain in a crime Pete?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I you know, looking back to my first book, Wimra, um, which also had this quite. Villainous character of Ronnie, and I've been asked a few times, you know, what is it about these really bad men and why do you keep writing them? One guy actually asked me at an event up on the stage, you know, what was your relationship like with your father? Like, we need a kind of a chaise long to, to be talking about. But it's, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's absolutely. Necessary, I think there's part... You know, people say in, in writing a novel or being a writer that the characters are kind of partly based on people you've come across, partly um, you and, and partly completely made up. So I think that in a way to... You know to write those characters you you do need to walk in their shoes a little mm-hmm. bit and the the reality is, and it's partly I think informed by you know my background work in the justice system um but th- there are you know some people out there who do, do some really bad shit sometimes, <laughs> and that's just just the reality I mean like there was one case you know people probably don't even. Sort of read their stories, but there was one a couple of years back. Uh, Sarah Gatt, who you know, her um, decomposed remains were found in a bathtub. I think it was in Kensington, you know, and her. Um, it, it appeared they have still haven't solved that crime, and you know, it appeared that some of her associates were collecting her um, uh, welfare at the same time, you know, and it was... She'd been murdered and, and like, the the things that people do to each other sometimes are horrendous, absolutely horrendous. And there can be very complex reasons for that. Again, but I, I, I think, you know, I... I suppose in in providing that that darkness to the story and that tension, um, it, it's it's important because in crime stories, I guess what, what's fascinating about them is people are placed in extremes, and it's how they respond in those situations of extremes. And in the case of the Rip, we're almost looking over the shoulder of the main character, and we're going, "This isn't looking good." You know, this guy isn't good. Mm just be careful, you know. In a way, as a reader, you know a little bit more than what she does, although she's gradually becoming aware. And I I kind of see, I guess, the rip and Wimra... They're um, they're not conventional crime novels in a way, you know. They're not they're not procedurals. We haven't got like an investigator. We haven't got it. You know, we're not sitting on the shoulder of a journalist in you know following a crime or anything like that. It's not a courtroom drama. It's very much character centred and how characters respond in given situations. So, I think having that. That darkness there and that that tension just allows me to go deeper into that character and see how they'll act.
1: There's also something really interesting about this, and I I was thinking a lot about it afterwards because, you know, what happened with Courtney Herron happened, um, you know, essentially in her home. uh, Mm. She was sleeping rough. um, Mm. And, you know, when the vigils were happening, where people were talking about this, it was all centered around looking after people and getting them home safely. And what you've really centered here was really, you know, so you know, I'm kind of getting chills even thinking about it because in a sense it's sort of quite gothic that... that home is the dangerous place That being in this house that Steve has Is where there's a genuine darkness And your central character is really keen To kind of get back to, you know, the safe place Which is actually the park Where she was mm-hmm. sleeping with Anton The home that she'd made with, with her, you know, Anton and her dog Where she felt safe Where she felt like she wasn't going to be assaulted uh, Where she felt like her boundaries were, were respected Was really home yeah. But it was in the open air And it really occurred to me that actually that lack of safety quite often is something that people feel in their home and that you know it is a really quite there's a reason why a lot of crimes are kind of centered in a isolated kind of enclosed space like a home because that is sometimes where the darkest things Mm, happen mm. was that a kind of really deliberate decision on your behalf to have that sort of tension between what maybe the broader public might think of as an unsafe place for a woman sleeping outdoors Mm. compared to actually being indoors somewhere which is actually statistically less safe for women yeah
2: yeah (laughs) oh look (laughs) I I wanted to explore that, you know. What is home? What constitutes home? And to me, home is people. Home is the people you love, the people who love you. And dogs. And (laughs) and dogs, that's right. (laughs) And who care for you. That's home. And I'm I'm not seeking to sort of, um, I guess, diminish the precariousness of homelessness in in being outdoors because it can be terribly unsafe. There's no doubt about that. But... In this case, we have the main character, yeah, exactly as you say, longing to go back to this park, which most people might consider precarious. And, you know, home, those four walls, what we might consider home is the most dangerous place to be. And statistically, that is true for... Everyone, you know, most most crimes are committed um, by people we know against us, or by us against people we know. That's just the reality, and you know, we we never know what's going on next door, down the street. Yeah, stuff happens in these houses and in families, which is terrible. And I was conscious that for the main character, her feelings of security did not hinge upon four walls and a roof. That was important to her, sure. She wanted that. Anton definitely wanted that down the track. But her home was Anton and Sonny and that that's safety that she had with them. And that's really what she longed for and what what Steve challenged. And, you know, I again, going back to my work in the justice system and you, you kind of see... Uh, People entering the, the prison system particularly and their backgrounds have just been horrendous their home lives have been horrendous and that's what they're when they're leaving prison often that they're going back to you know it isn't it isn't safety it isn't good it isn't stable it can be really really tough and we you know i think there's i read a stat that uh people in prison in Victoria, uh, one in two is returning to jail within two years and we're just building more and more prisons and then, you know, it's just round and round the cycle goes. And I think unless as a society really we, we start to sort of look at what's going on here what what's happening with the division between you know the haves and the have-nots and that's getting wider and wider that class division because we we we're creating essentially a permanent underclass mm. and and people who cannot Escape their situation I mean we've got there's this mythology I think in Australia around you know that anyone can make it and if you work hard you can do it you know and you can pull yourself up Um, and it's a myth it's a complete myth I mean we're in the bottom half of the OECD in terms of class mobility the circumstances you're born into are most likely the circumstances you'll end up in that's just the reality so I, I think that you know that concept of home the material things which we all kind of consider important it's good to be safe there's no question but you need like emotional support and and what the main character looks for from anton and and from sunny you know that safety that's home and what she really needed there was you know you could look at it and say some decent social housing ultimately
1: absolutely i was the the whole time i was sitting there going ah (laughs) i really that would have resolved um, many of her issues Mm. Uh, i do want to sort of finish up talking about your decision to not name her throughout the book Mm. and then give her her name at the end um It's a really, I found that incredibly moving because I guess my take on it was so many people like this character are nameless and are sort of overlooked. Um, And I guess we have an an instance like with Courtney Heron where her name is now known but because she was the victim of, you know, a horrific murder and um, now, you know, this you know there's a very different ending to your story i'm happy to say for those who just can't take any more sadness um but it's actually one that um that really gives her her name mm. what was that decision about
2: yeah look i when i started writing her her character when i started writing her story i found myself about 3 chapters in and i thought god i haven't given her she doesn't have a name you know and I continued with that and I think part of the the rationale behind it was really, I suppose that there's a tendency for us to look at people in that situation and say they're different, they're not like us, they're not like anyone we know um, and that won't happen to us or anyone we know and I wanted the reader as much as possible to be in her shoes looking at the world you know from her viewpoint and I I felt as though if I if I named her earlier on that that would create a bit of distance it would make her the other She is this other person so I wanted the person the reader sorry in her viewpoint and what you say is absolutely right it's about the invisibility of of people in this situation and and i understand i I do understand why sometimes people find it you know too hard that they look at at someone in a difficult situation and they think oh what can you do i can't do anything so look away and i wanted to break that down a little bit you know and one of the things that happens with the main character in the rip and, and what gives the story ultimately some hope is the actions of those around her in terms of those small kindnesses that that occur from the the police officer, Dirty Dog, you know, the doctor in the hospital, those little things which add up to something which for her are, I guess make her realise that she's valued and people care about her and she, you know, tries to extricate herself from the situation that she's in. Um, you know, I, I don't think we can imagine what it's like to to be invisible, to be sitting there, let's say, you know, it might be outside the coals in Smith Street or whatever, and, and people are walking past and you're just not there. What would that be like? I think it would just be horrendous experience you know and i hope that people reading the book if it, it, I, I didn't sort of write it to you know like bring about a huge social, social change or anything like that but it but or deliver a message even but but i suppose that's one thing i'd, I'd like people to take from the book is just to you know stop for a minute sometimes and and, and talk to a person even you know even not homeless people but like could be someone in their street who's living alone and you know um disconnected in some way you know we've all become very i think insular with our you know our headphones in looking at our phones listening to podcasts whatever it might be which i, I get but staying connected with people Smiling at someone, saying hello—those little things sometimes can can make a difference.
1: I think that's the perfect place to leave uh, this discussion about your excellent book, *The Rip*. Mark Brandy, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks, Mel. It's a pleasure.
1: That was uh, Mark Brandy, author of *The Rip*, his latest book, and uh, award-winning author of *Wimmera*. Um, I very much recommend you getting your hands on both of those books if you haven't uh, read either. Um, The Rip is out now and certainly Colours Melbourne in a way that many of us may not have seen, but definitely should be aware of.
2: 3 triple
1: You're listening to Backstory on 3 RR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, Salman Rushdie calls the diaspora experience plural and partial, and this idea of falling between cultures or straddling both is one explored in an event coming up as part of a collaboration between Liminal Magazine and the Emerging Writers' Festival interstitial will run at the loop bar on the 27th of june and features writers poets comics and artists exploring the theme of living in this non-binary space between cultures and joining me today are two guests featured in that event illustrator zine maker and comic artist pio michi and writer artist and musician heather joan rose Uh, heather joan and pio welcome to backstory Hi, thanks hey. for having us. <laughs> Thank
3: you.
1: <laughs> so uh, I'm really, uh, I, we've been talking a little bit um, before we went to air about, you know, why I'm interested in this particular festival. I've got a really, you know, weirdly mixed cultural background and I'm always really fascinated in how that's represented. I think mixed race is often one of those those things that sort of falls between the cracks. But increasingly, increasingly we're sort of getting comfortable uh, with sort of being in those spaces between the binaries on all fronts, whether that's, you know, gender or that's sexuality or that's race. Um, But this, you know, this particular event really is, you know, something that's highlighting that. And both of you have kind of explored these different themes in your work, and I'd really love... To talk about the sorts of things that you might be discussing in this event, Pio, maybe can we start with you? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so you're a you're an artist and an illustrator and a zine mm-hmm. maker, and I've come I came across your work first at a uh, a zine festival, and um and it's really you know you sort of talk about your own identity quite a lot in that. I'd love you to talk a little bit about your work and how it fits into this event.
0: Um yeah, I think I very much identify, um with being interracial and not really belonging to one culture or one race since I was born in South Africa. And then I grew up in white rural Australia since I was young. And then I realized I was gay. <laughs> and, um, and so I guess like when people, and I, ex- I explored that through art and stuff. And I feel like people often see uh, the queerness in my art but, like, I think people do kind of have, like, a color blindness to the color in it um, because we still, I still feel like in in many, like, queer spaces and stuff, we don't acknowledge race or um, anti-blackness or things like that in, uh, in queer spaces often enough. And, yeah, it's hard for me because I don't. Completely identify as a black woman Because I'm also half white And I look very mixed race And I always get questions about What are you, what's your background (laughs) Where you grow up You know Um, Yeah so I, I definitely identify Being in like I guess like this In between You know being a Undisclosed I suppose like But obvious, like outsider, you know, and kind of feeling alienated because it's like, okay, so my sexuality isn't quite the majority, and neither is like my skin tone.
1: It's a really interesting space to dwell in. And I actually read an interview with you uh, where you sort of talk a little bit about that, you know, how you sort of sometimes feel compelled to adhere to sort of more um, typical sort of. Uh, I guess, Western notions of beauty or like, you know, Mm. idealised notions of beauty in in countries like Australia that tend to be more Anglo-Saxon, but that you're sort of, you know, struggling with that and and maybe to express, you know, your other part of your identity. It's always an interesting one. I I think of it as like a Rorschach test. People look at you and they see what they want to see. So I (laughs) sort of, you know, I can be that, but it's not not even as simple as that. Sometimes you are flitting between those things and and expressing stuff like that. Heather-Joan, you've also talked talked uh, a lot about uh, in your in your work you explore identity and and yeah. you know um being you know kind of forced or feeling forced to to fit into some idea of who you are supposed to be that's certainly a theme uh, in your work i'd love you to talk a little bit about that in the context of this of this kind of event
3: yeah um i'm going to be doing poetry for this um event and um Yeah, similarly, I really relate to that question of being asked, what are you? (laughs) Um, And I think, like, uh, being queer but growing up biracial um, is in a way, like, good practice for people asking you what you are (laughs) and having to navigate that. Um, Like, yeah, one of the pieces I want to read for this event is sort of about being um, biracial, bisexual, bipolar and (laughs) um, a trans woman. So, like, those are all sort of identities that do have this sort of, like, non binariness, um, where you're kind of, like... I feel like I'm constantly navigating identity and not necessarily feeling like I fit anywhere. Um, but, yeah, I think... And, like, you say, like, we're sort of getting better at talking about these, like, in-between identities. Um, and I feel like I'm learning how to do that as well for myself. Like, as a child feeling like i had to sort of fit into something and then yeah sort of growing up and realizing that there's language and Um, people who are excited about in between spaces and identities
1: it's quite a hard one to carve out though isn't it to really sort of say actually you know i i want to live in this ambiguity because other people want neat boxes to put you in even even the best meaning people Mm. you know want to try and you know fit you into a prefabricated norm how do you both address that type of thing you know have you started to embrace the middle ground or is it still that sort of what what i was describing earlier of you know i can sometimes i feel one way sometimes i feel another way and How do you feel about that kind of rocky boat here? I feel like
0: (laughs) lately I've been dealing with a lot of that and I've just kind of been stepping away from it. I think I've been kind of like, no one is owed an answer right now. I don't know right now. Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, because I think, I don't know, I think I guess because... The way my work is, it just has a broad appeal, which I definitely love about it, but it's also frustrating because everyone wants it, I guess, to specifically, they want me to specifically address how it can apply to them, and it's like, I don't think it can specifically apply to you unless you're (laughs) me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I feel like I have been struggling with that lately, even with like the most well-intentioned, I feel like people, you know, um, people in the queer space. And I feel like, especially where it's just kind of like, um, that's great. I don't know. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Sorry. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> Had the train.
3: Um, I think that's kind of what I write about is that because, like, <laughs> and in my poetry, especially I try and do it with like humor, of being like I'm confused about me as well. <laughs> so <laughs> you being confused that's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think um I think I, I'm always surprised by how like relatable like such specific um work about identity can be. Like I found your work really relatable as well. <laughs> um like queerness and like queer bodies and um different like colors and yeah. Um so yeah, I I always struggle with that as well of like wanting to make um work that everyone can sort of engage with while still making it really specific to my own weird identity yeah
1: if you've just joined us you're listening to Backstory on RRR I'm El Cranenberg and I'm talking to zine maker comic artist and illustrator Pio Michi and writer musician and artist Heather Joan Day who are both going to be guests at a really uh interesting sounding event that's uh coming up as part of the Emerging Writers Festival X uh it is run in conjunction with Liminal Magazine uh and it's called Interstitial it's going to be at Loot Bar on the 27th of June from about I believe. Uh, I'd love to hear about what exactly you two will actually will be exploring on the, on the evening in case people are really keen to get along. Pio, mm-hmm. what are you going to be presenting?
0: Um, I'm actually presenting a, I guess, like an old piece, but it was just like a piece I really loved. Um, it, uh, it was called Gay Heartbreak. And, yeah, I think it was a piece that a lot of people – Really related to because they're like gay heartbreak. I know all <laughs> about that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard out here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, but I think it was also a piece where people also didn't see the yeah I, I the woman of color in it and, like that the depiction of like gay heartbreak was this like person I felt like was mixed race like me Um, so I was excited to kind of revisit the piece and like you know I used to do animation so I just added some animation to it and I'm like excited to like yeah to present it in this um, I guess like this more queer space that like People of mixed race and people with like, like acknowledgement to POC um, can appreciate it on like in in like in that way as well. Because like my my work is both, but I think one one aspect of it definitely dominates over the other side. <laughs>
1: Heather-Joan, what will you be showing on the, or saying or doing on the day? You've got so many strings to your poets. It's um, yeah, um, wonderful.
3: I've got a couple of poems I'm going to read. I've got some new ones and an old one that I might do. Um, but, yeah, similarly, I think race isn't always something that's at the forefront of my work. Um, so I think this context will be cool. But um, I think one thing that I'm trying to do with these poems is try and make... Um, Try and make identity sexy, try and make um, it fun and that confusion and like you know trauma and difficulty of living um, with mixed identities uh, something interest, like something that we can enjoy I think yeah,
1: I love it uh, well, this uh, really does sound like an an event that we should all be getting along to, and definitely talking more about. As well, um, and everyone should uh, very definitely look up both of your work. Um, it's it's really excellent. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today, Pio and Heather Joan. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us.
2: Three triple R.
1: You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.